Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hard questions and hopefully good answers tonight. Hi, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, March 30th, 2017. Can't believe it's the end of March already. Good afternoon to those in the Western time zones, and Charles Marshall included, and good evening to those in the East. Follow the instructions you received when you called in in order to appear on my studio board that you are waiting with a question. We have several questions that have been sent in, and we will get to as many as we can. I'm joined tonight by my good friend, California lawyer Charles Marshall, again, to field your questions and to discuss appeals and other issues Uh, And we'll get to that in a moment. First, a little bit of news. I published yesterday, I think it was, um, a short article with a link to the Sunquist case uh, in which a judge in uh, California bankruptcy court awarded $45 million in punitive damages, the amount of which was supported, in his view, by the fact that Bank of America, who violated the automatic stay under the bankruptcy laws, Bank of America basically ran these people through the mill despite the fact that they have entered into so many settlements costing billions and billions of dollars, which really is a drop in the bucket, and that hasn't taught them a lesson. I think there's gold in those hills for the lawyers who are listening And if you want to make enough money to retire for the rest of your life, you might want to consider the fact that the tide is turning ever so slowly in favor of borrowers on damage awards uh, and a little bit on the foreclosures themselves. The decision was not so much about the technical merits of either side, although that was clearly a problem for Bank of America in that case. 
it was more <clears throat> about what the judge specifically said were Kafkaesque illusions and penalties against the borrower inflicted by the bank for the sole purpose of confusing the homeowner and tiring out the homeowner so they would just give up. In, in, the, in the Sunquist case, it was about violation of the bankruptcy automatic stay, specifically how they tortured the homeowner through lures telling them as the story that we all know you have to be 90 days behind in order to be considered for modification which is uh, a language that they use carefully scripted that doesn't say stop paying but it gets the borrower to stop paying and that's addressed by the judge in uh, judge Klein in that in, in that order and their tactics involving a modification that was clearly never intended to ever come to fruition. Modification might be one of the cracks in the armor of the banks. It's all fake. I know, I know the foreclosures are fake too. But the context and culture of the judiciary is based on an orthodoxy that may not be true, but it is accepted as axiomatic that at, at, uh, at the base of this, there is a real transaction and that one of these rotating parties on the carousel in all probability is the creditor. The fact that it is not the creditor is something they reject because if they reject it, then they're afraid of undermining the entire economy, the financial industry, and our society at large. Speaking truth to power, the foreclosure defense lawyer has an uphill battle all the time. But in an increasing number of cases, we are seeing forced settlements or, like the Sunquist case, a, an order awarding $45 million in punitive damages. Whether that number will stick or if it will be settled or if there will be an appeal and reduced or set aside, we don't know. But the judge clearly, in a very long opinion, that really spelled out point by point why he was so infuriated by the conduct of Bank of America, which incidentally mimics the conduct of Citibank, City Mortgage, uh, the whole U.S. bank, bank sham, uh, Wells Fargo, Aquin, SPS, uh, etc. They all are doing the same thing, and it's all about getting people into foreclosure. So we'll talk about appeal, uh, appeals and um, other matters uh, later in the broadcast. So 
Okay, I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield firm with offices in North Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not yet contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 202-838-6345 in order to donate whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, if the blog has value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. And I can tell you that dozens and dozens of lawyers only in the past month have gone out of their way to tell me how helpful the blog is in their litigation of cases and the strategy and tactics on voir dire of a witness and all of those things that I've worked so hard on for the last 10 years in foreclosure defense. So if you want that to continue, then you need to donate because we're a small operation and it takes money to pay the bills. Nobody's looking to make a lot of money here, but we just want to continue to help you and help all consumers. So, Charles, welcome back. Uh, great to be back on again, Neil. Actually, I should say, it should be you saying welcome back because I've been gone. But anyway. <laughs> Indeed. Um, <laughs> so, um, I talked about the Sunquist case and the likely appeal, I would think, uh, in that case. Um Oh, yeah, Let's I start imagine off. America will be appealing. I did want to talk yes. briefly about the Sunquist case. Uh, one of the things that allowed, first of all, a positive result for the borrower in that case is the, the litigants had clearly followed your advice, either, either because they naturally gravitated to, to, to this approach or they heard it from someone else, but the litigants kept a very good uh, current journal, you know, essentially a journal that kept impressions up to date and developments up to date so that it would be considered uh, essentially uh, coterminous with, with any event that happened. And that's I wouldn't say it's necessarily essential in these cases, but on the other hand, this is kind of showing that it is really critical. And without that, this case not, might not have gone forward because it creates the evidentiary trail to show what happened when. And there were a couple of unusual wrinkles to this case. I mean, first of all, Bank of America did violate a foreclosure 
day because the bankruptcy in question, I believe it was filed the day, the day of the sale, and that can create its own issues for borrowers uh, because even though the the automatic stay theoretically is effective literally at the minute, at the moment of, of being filed, there still is a kind of uh, well, there's there's a notification requirement of sorts, and basically getting the bankruptcy petition number to somebody in in processing authority with the servicer and or the sales trustee is considered acceptable to give notification of the bankruptcy. Here, well, I'm not yeah, sure what kind of notif- yeah, I'm not sure what kind of notification happened here. Uh, well, in the event, Bank of America did agree and did rescind the sale, but they rescinded it without letting the borrower know. Meanwhile, the borrower, I guess one could use the word, freaked out when they got the, the, the inevitable three-day notice. The three-day notice was, was tendered on them very quickly. Sometimes it'll be weeks or months or even years before that happens. But they got it right away, and... I don't think they knew their legal options. I don't think they knew that in California, you get a three-day notice, you don't have to leave immediately. The, the lender servicer would still have to bring an actual lawsuit to, to, to remove you. They didn't know that, so they abandoned the property temporarily. And meanwhile, even with Bank of America rescinding their sale and putting the borrowers back on title, they still went in and took a bunch of appliances. That's one of the the really overreaching activities they engaged in that got them into big trouble in this. But there's no question that the contemporaneous documentation was a big factor in this case. Well, it was not just uh, uh, documentation. It turned out to be evidence. The uh, judge specifically ruled that it was uh, non-hearsay um uh, uh, evidence which consisted of admissions of uh, the opposing party and admitted it into evidence. The other thing was that he found that uh, Bank of America did know before the sale and didn't cancel it. And uh, uh, to go uh, uh, further on your comments about the journaling people don't don't like doing it but it makes all the difference in the world even if the judge refuses to allow it in as evidence it focuses the mind so that the homeowner if called upon to testify will have things straight in their head and they're much easier to prepare for deposition or trial testimony so I've counseled my clients for 40 years to keep a journal. And it only takes a few seconds to write down the time, the date, the person, the telephone number, and a quick line uh, uh, indicating what happened. And people have told me, as I have learned myself in doing it, that this serves as a record that they can go back to when there's a question of what did I say I would do or what did they say they would do. Uh, 
And uh, uh, in, in this case, they kept the journal with uh, a larger span of comments, which included direct quotes from the people that they were speaking to at Bank of America. The ability to be on message and to stay on message and it be the truth, convincing truth, for a judge or jury to hear, that is priceless. And in this case, it was worth $45 million. So yes, I think... And it, yeah, it's, it's an exception to the hearsay rule, as you were alluding to a minute ago. That's very important, and that applied here, absolutely. Contemporaneous impressions in the first person, kept in a journal, kept in a written ledger of some kind, those are absolutely a hearsay exception, which a good judge will allow in when the journal is kept regularly and the the comments are made at or about the time of the events in question. Yeah, but Judge Klein avoided that basis for letting it in and went to a brand new basis, which was that the statements in the journal were not hearsay at all and that they consisted of admissions from the opposing party and therefore they would be admitted. It did have the flavor of the business records thing because it was made at at the time of the event and all that stuff. Um, uh, But uh, his actual ruling on the evidence was that it was not hearsay. It was an admission against interest by Bank of America employees. So he opened the door to the whole realm of the law of evidence, which has been sorely lacking in foreclosure litigation. I mean, I was on two consults today where people were asking me, well, doesn't this doesn't litigation work this way? And I, my answer, as it has been for years, is yes, unless it's a foreclosure case. And <laughs> it, it doesn't, you know, uh, it doesn't make sense to a lot of people. It undermines their faith in the judicial system and for good reason. Uh, we're supposed to, you know, have blind justice, not some political orthodoxy governing how judges think and how judges rule. So let's get into this whole issue of appeals, and maybe we can sneak in a couple of the questions. I'll just read them off to you. What is a negotiable instrument? I've read the UCC. It doesn't make sense. This is a law in my state. And both the trial courts and appellate courts ignore it. What should I do? Uh, And uh, uh, there's a question, perhaps you could answer it, about what bankruptcy could do uh, for a homeowner in Chapter 7, Chapter 11, or Chapter 13. I know Chapter 11 pretty well. Uh, Maybe we can get to that. Let's start off with what... Uh, an appeal is not. You want to take that one? Uh, sure. Um, I mean, an appeal 
is not necessarily relitigating everything that just happened in the case. I mean, in the real world, when you bring a case on appeal, the the fundamental standard is you need to find essentially what's called reversible error in the way the judge handled the case so that even if the result goes against the evidence presented in the law as it should have been applied, it doesn't mean that you're going to win on appeal. However, if you can show that procedurally, particularly, uh, the judge handled the introduction of evidence or the judge excluded certain categories of evidence or otherwise made some rulings which went completely against the flow of the case, then procedurally you can you can be in a place where you can get a reversal and a, and a, and a remand. Um, it is a complicated process, and there's not a definitive way to define what would make an appeal fly as opposed to to flounder. However, an appeal, again, it's not relitigating the case, and it's it's also not going to necessarily stop foreclosure activity, though it often will. Uh, getting that temporary restraining order at the beginning of the case to stop foreclosure activity, all things being equal, that's much easier to do than using an appeal to stop foreclosure activity because with an appeal, there's still a presumption that your case is on life support if that, and that the judge was right. The purpose of the appeal is to reverse that presumption. So it's it's extremely unusual for requests for stay to be to be acknowledged in the appellate format. You need to bring a a writ of petition, basically, and those are rarely granted. Right. I, I think I think the fundamental thing that I've been harping on for ten years is that nothing will stop a foreclosure except a, an order signed by a judge. Now, it's considered to have been signed by the judge in bankruptcy the moment the petition is filed, and that's just a legal fiction that uh, is law. But nothing will stop a foreclosure, not even an appeal, other than a court order. Now, the court order might be, I'm going to enter a stay here and prevent the foreclosure, the sale of the property until the appeal is uh, is resolved. Uh, but the the fact is that the uh, uh, appeal itself is not very utilitarian in uh, uh, stopping them from uh, sale and. Uh, potentially even eviction. Uh, I, I would like to give you some statistics, which is that it's only one out of six appeals that are 
that produce a favorable result for the party who files the notice of appeal. In that statistic are criminal cases which constitute probably more than half of the of, the, of that one out of six. So it's really 0.5 out of six on the civil side, and of those, it would only be uh, uh, perhaps half that that are in the foreclosure arena. So the odds are, are, are against you, and um, uh, they're not only just statistically against you, but there's a general orthodoxy in the court system that says we have to protect the banks. Now, the one thing statistically that I wanted to point out, and this was first told to me by a bankruptcy judge in Arizona. It turns out that though that one-sixth is exactly what happens if you appeal a bankruptcy decision to the Circuit Court of Appeal. It also applies if you appeal to the bankruptcy appellate panel. But there's another option, and that is an, a, a lateral, well, it's really a, an appeal to a higher authority with higher jurisdiction, but it kind of looks like a lateral appeal to the district judge uh, who presides over that area and uh, who presides over the bankruptcy judge. There, the statistic is 50-50, possibly because of political things, which is that the district judge is only too happy to remind the bankruptcy judge that the bankruptcy judge is junior in jurisdiction and authority to the district judge. So I thought I would add that information uh, and note also that this $45 million award was originally uh, based on a lawsuit that was filed and then consolidated into the bankruptcy action uh, where it was tried under uh, ancillary jurisdiction on the basis that it affected the size and nature of the estate. Um, and that's how it ended up there. The appeal by Bank of America, which Charles and I both think probably will occur, will probably be brought to the uh, uh, Circuit Court of Appeal, the Ninth Circuit. And, uh, and the reason they would go there rather than a bank... Uh, bankruptcy appellate panel, which frankly might not even have the jurisdiction to hear the appeal, uh, uh, is that they have a better record at the with the Circuit Court of Appeal than they do with, uh, uh, or that they would with uh, uh, other forms of appeal to the bankruptcy appellate panel if it's available or to the district court judge. And, uh, yeah, that's my experience, uh, Neil, also in California. And typically it is better to bypass the bankruptcy appellate panel. The one thing I would say 
I mean, these statistics, I'm, I'm giving you as more generic ones, not precise ones. But it is true when cases are on appeal in, in California that for borrowers, typically the sale dates are postponed. You might have rolling sale, sale dates. Sometimes the sale dates are canceled outright. Typically they're postponed. No guarantee, of course. And yes, only an order will absolutely stop a sale. However, typically they they are either kept off or they continue to roll during the pendency of your appeal. Right, and uh, and and that's that's important that there, there's a uh, another level to this, which is just the level of reality and practicality, where uh, uh, the banks, for whatever their reasons are, decide to postpone the sales rather than going ahead with the sales and facing the music of what happens if the appeal is decided two years down the road and the decision is that the foreclosing party had no right to foreclose, had no interest in the loan, had no authority to collect or foreclose, and didn't represent as an agent any creditor. That would open them up to some serious punitive damages, and more than that, open up potentially thousands of other cases uh, if uh, if they actually uh, went forward with that. Um, because if they if they go forward with it, then there is an action for wrongful foreclosure under California law. Uh, uh, whereas if they don't go forward with it, the action for wrongful foreclosure is tepid at best, and uh, uh, most of the other claims revolving around uh, wrongful foreclosure uh, would go down with it. But what this case, the Sunquist case, and, and, and some other cases that I reported on just over the last week, what they're saying is that the meat may be in the modification process where the entire system is to misrepresent, misinform the, the homeowner on what it takes to modify, get them to go into default when they weren't in default, or get them to go further into default when they were ready to reinstate, and lead them inevitably to foreclosure in the belief that they are getting a modification and where the bank even takes payments, leading the homeowner to believe they already got the modification. And then they get foreclosed. And that money is frequently lost. It's never accounted for, which means that the right of redemption is di diluted or defective because the wrong amount uh, has been demanded. So there are a lot of uh, uh, idiosyncrasies to this. Now, appeal, as Charles will tell you, it's not a trial, 
and many pro se litigants and even many lawyers will write a brief saying, here's why I should have won. The answer to that brief is per curiam affirmed. They don't give an opinion. They just say the trial court is affirmed. Explaining why you should have won and how the judge didn't give uh, the proper weight to the evidence is invading the discretion of the trial court. And the appellate court generally will not interfere with that. So you just have a loser if that's what you if that's what you're expressing in your appeal. But if you say here's what the trial court did wrong, which is what Charles was talking about just a moment ago, that's an appeal. And that will be taken seriously and that will fall into the slot machine as to, you know, whether or not it succeeds, but you will have stated properly an appeal. Any comment on that, Charles? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you you have to get at the legal procedure that took place. If you get into the weeds of substantive law, however merited that is, yes, it can it it can ultimately put you on the other side of where you're trying to go. But if you don't attack procedure fundamentally to show that the trial court abused its discretion and how it handled evidence and how it handled the hearings and essentially the presentation that was allowed to take place, if you don't attack that fundamentally, you're being able to prove up something on the substantive law and is not going to. It might help, but it's not going to win your appeal. Right. And you'll lose your appeal without the procedural challenge. And here's a question that uh, we already had sent in here. Uh, In fact, it's up on the board here. Um, And this comes up all the time. Can I file a new lawsuit while my case is on appeal? And this obviously may relate to raised judicata, the Rooker-Feldman doctrine, etc. So the the answer, I assume, Charles, is that if the new lawsuit is not simply relitigating the same matters that were brought up on in the foreclosure case, then the new lawsuit is fine. Is that right? I would say the intent of the rules around race judicata, which is claim preclusion, and then you have issue preclusion, which is a subset of that. The rules are meant to to give the, the, the relitigant some latitude in how they present their case again. But in the real world, a lot of judges will shut down a new lawsuit and treat it as race judicata if it's a foreclosure case. If it, This goes back to what you were saying earlier, Neil, and, and unfortunately, you and I have both had to note this before. You have regular litigation and then you have foreclosure litigation. If you look at the rules around claim preclusion, race judicata, 
and issue preclusion in California, and this is true pretty much everywhere, including federal court, what you find is for a case to be absolutely shut down the next round, the way it would work is you'd have to have an identity of parties, meaning you're suing the same people, and you'd have to have an identity of issues, meaning you're bringing almost exactly the same causes of action and retreading the same facts and the law as applied to those facts. However, in the real legal world, particularly in California, as long as you had your bite at the apple is the proverbial term, a lot of judges will say, look, if you're coming at, 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 to this court again and you're talking about the foreclosure you're in or you're talking about the loan that was refinanced at this time or you're talking about the loan that was originated and then you got into a notice of default, you're bringing the same set of facts to me. Look, you had your shot at this. And this is actually raised you to kind of law. I mean, this is a legitimate interpretation. I think it's too strict an interpretation, but it's a legitimate interpretation of how claim preclusion is supposed to work. And that is, you had your day in court, you're coming back to me, yes, with your parties are a little bit different, you've added some defendants, maybe you've dropped some, you've got different causes of action to some extent, but you're still coming back to this court to complain about, to litigate over the problem you had with your mortgage, what you'll often hear is get out of my courtroom. I mean, that it will be a race judicata shut down if even minimally pled by the servicer or the sales trustee when they're opposing your case when they've been sued. So the short of it is it's a high bar to bring an additional case. Now, if you can create a new event, then yes. That will often go forward. One way that that borrowers who have already gone through the foreclosure, gone through the the lawsuit process and had a dismissal with prejudice, if you're beyond the time to timely appeal, which is 60 days in California, it's a little complex what event you're talking about, but generally 60 days from the order or judgment and then 30 days in federal court in California. Uh, the bottom line of what I'm trying to say here, though, is if you're beyond that time frame and you're bringing a new lawsuit, if it's related to a new homeowner bill of rights problem, if you've got servicer issues that are current, particularly along the lines of, of the kind of double dealing and game playing that went on in the Sunquist case, then yes, even though you've litigated on your foreclosure situation, whether you're still in the property, whether you still control the title of the property. Um, if you're in some kind of loan mod review, which of course, it, it it's not a given that if you've had your property go to sale, you're not going to be able to do a loan mod review. But technically speaking, that's not going to happen. I have seen it happen where the servicer ignores their own rules and treat you, treat you as if you're still uh, an owner in interest. But for, for all that to be legal and for realistic purposes, the servicer is only going to negotiate with you in the vast majority of cases around a loan mod 
if you're still on title to the property. So if that's the case, you can get new uh, essentially illegalities related to the Homeowner Bill of Rights just in the typical way that uh, these these loan modifications are handled. So that can create a new lawsuit. Other than that, it's, it's, other than that it's a roll me, of the dice. Yeah, let me cut in here with just a couple of comments. One is that the Ivanova case specifically says that uh, a void assignment uh, cannot be used to defeat the foreclosure, but it can be used in an action for damages, and if you're on appeal from the decision that allowed the foreclosure at the same time that you uh, um, <laughs> that you're filing the lawsuit for damages, uh, you you are probably going to, not going to run into uh, the race judicata problem unless. Uh, the issues you brought in the first case are identical uh, and, the, and the parties are identical, which I usually broaden. Um, secondly, this is equity versus law uh, and judicial versus non-judicial. What Charles just said is... Uh, a bullseye as to non-judicial states, or most of them anyway. As to ju judicial states, uh, my experience is that it's, he's, he's right, but with some uh, uh, qualification. In the judicial states, the actions for damages and other affirmative relief that are unrelated to the actual foreclosure dispute itself, the mortgage and the note, um, those are non-compulsory counterclaims which can be brought separately and that's the law in judicial states. And uh, there's no res judicata or Rooker-Feldman or anything about it that uh, would, would bar such an action. Now, on the other hand, I'm going to tell you that those actions uh, receive a hostile greeting from trial courts from coast to coast. So overall, uh, uh, what Charles is telling you is right on the money. You need to find something that, a, a, a pattern of facts that is outside of the uh, uh, initial foreclosure uh, process or the initial foreclosure complaint. And uh, once again, we're yeah, I think we're up time. to the end of the show, Neil. But I was just going to say real quickly, race judicata in California and elsewhere, non-judicially, it's supposed to only apply if your case is not appealable. In other words, you've had a final order that's not subject to appeal. Well, of course, if your case is on appeal, theoretically, you can bring a new case. In my experience, judges will shut those down, typically anyway. But theoretically, you could bring a new case as long as the first case is on appeal. All right. We'll have to wrap it there. Charles Marshall, thank you again for appearing on the show. And we'll be Very much talking so. to you Appreciate it. next week.
Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.